This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 30, and the quote of the day is from Ray Charles, who said, I never wanted to be famous. I only wanted to be great. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini, and we're coming at you with information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And today we have on the show David Hooper from musicmarketing.com. And David is a musician, but he's also a music marketer. And he wrote the book Six Figure Musician, which teaches you how to become a six-figure musician uh, in this in this tough industry of the music business. He also runs his own podcast over at Music Business Radio and just has a ton of knowledge about the music industry and more importantly, how to make money in the music industry, which I think is important. And we all do this for the love of playing and for the love of music, but it's great to make some money while you're doing it as well, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes people equate it to being a bad thing that you're making money playing music. And uh, personally, I don't think it's a bad thing. And I know David doesn't, and you shouldn't either because it's a craft. It's a, and, and just because you enjoy it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of hard work that goes into it to achieving this or to, uh, excelling at this craft. So you should definitely not be ashamed to charge people for it and make as much money as you can with, you know, without being sleazy or without being, uh, you know, uh, deceiving by doing it. Before we get into it, just to let you know, if you go to drummersresource.com and sign up for the VIP mailing list, it's free to sign up. You'll get these podcasts before they're released to the general public, and there's also some other tips and tricks of, uh, of you know the drumming game in there. And then you have my direct email, so you can contact me anytime you'd like. And please leave us a review on iTunes if you get a chance. We definitely appreciate it. And without further ado, let's get into this interview with David Hooper. David, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you taking some time out to chat. Glad to be here. Thank you. So we were uh, we were talking a little bit off air um, about what you do. You're 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 a, a music marketer, and you have um, you know you have that book that you that you did the the six figure musician. Um, but but tell us about yourself. Tell us a little bit more about you and and what you do and how you got into this. Well, I started out actually as a musician. I was born in Nashville. And that's what we do here. It's like Detroit making cars. So did my first session when I was five years old. And that was my first taste of the music industry. Everybody had music in schools here. And I always thought I was going to be a performing musician. I actually went to school for music. I've got a music degree. But somewhere during that time, I found out that I was better at marketing and getting people to shows than I was actually playing. You know, it's easy to be the best in your junior high and high school, but when you get out into the real world, especially in a city like Nashville, I remember taking college classes at Belmont University while I was still in, in high school hmm. because I was so serious about music. And that was kind of the realization I had at that point that, you know, maybe I'm not as good as I, I think that I am. I stuck it out for a few more years, but I was like, man, you know, I want to be in the industry and I'm good at marketing. And, and to, at that point, People were noticing that, and they were coming to me, so it kind of worked its way in pretty easily. And what instrument were you playing? Well, gu guitar was my main instrument. Yeah. So at what point did you did you realize that, man, maybe I don't want to go down this, uh, this performing route and want to start doing more of the marketing stuff? You know, I was just never a fan of going to do gigs. I didn't like the load-in. I didn't... Right. 
really liked the performance because I, I had, I wouldn't call it necessarily stage anxiety, but I remember I would <laughs> look in the back of the room and I would see some guy whispering to a girl. He was probably asking her out or uh-huh. get, get me a beer or something like that. But I always would always feel I was so insecure up there. I just felt really bare and raw like these guys well they're talking about me they're talking about me (laughs) he's like that guitar player sucks (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and 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 people were always really really nice and it was a weird thing to me as a musician because everybody was like oh man you know girls screaming and they're all interested in you but i remember would just at the end of the night be going home and thinking man this is the loneliest thing in the world it's like being in, in manhattan you know you're around all these people but you don't know any of them Right, and it was such a, a strange kind of twist to it, right? I, I really enjoyed the writing, I enjoyed the recording, I enjoyed the creative process, and I enjoyed the marketing as well. Mm-hmm. But as far as the performing, having to go out there and really sell it, it was it, it was just too uh, too intense for me. I, I guess I'm a, a little I'm this a sensitive artist type, right? <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that though, you know. And it's it's better that that you found out earlier rather than you know years later and it's like man i've been doing the wrong thing all these years <laughs> you know and you're like i should have been doing all this marketing stuff yeah you know? yeah well it was good that i had the marketing because i could bring people in but i was always fascinated by the guys that were bringing people in and, and th- that's what kind of put it together for me because they weren't necessarily the guys that were were the best Mm-hmm. They were just the guys that were good at marketing. You always hear musicians say that, man, what's going on? The radio sucks. I'm so much better as a musician. And th- that's probably true. But as far as connecting, sometimes you don't have to be the best musician. Mm-hmm. So it was just a lot of things. I really believe everybody comes in with gifts. And I think any musician listening to this, they knew they were a musician. Like as a drummer, you were probably banging on stuff when you were in the womb, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you yeah. come out and you just had this natural sense of rhythm and you end up being a drummer. Hey, big surprise, right? Right. And for me, I was I was the marketing guy. When you look back on it, I, I was, you know, I was like writing little books and magazines and selling them to my, my friends in second grade. And I was always, mm-hmm. you know, like that guy who was like making stuff and selling it. And and the music thing, I think it was just because I was in Nashville. Again, it's kind of like Detroit. I, I just assumed everybody did music because that's all I really saw around me. My school is at the end of Music Row, mm-hmm. and we drive past <laughs> Music Row down the down the row every day, and I saw all the tall buildings, and it was just like this is how everywhere what, is. That's what you did, yeah, right. yeah. And it was it was until I moved around that I realized that every city wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you say that about um, you know how you were like writing in magazines and, and selling them to your friends, and ever since I was a kid, I was. I was the same way playing wise, but I was also the entrepreneur too. So I was like, man, we should have, you know, a lemonade stand or we should, you know, we should do this and we can sell this. And then, and that's why I always wanted to marry the two because I love business and I love entrepreneurism and, and I love music and drumming. And I figured the, the best thing to do would just be to marry the two of them. And then, you know, it's, it's everything that I love all together, you know? Um, which really turned me on to your book, Six Figure Musician, because I think a lot of people are like, you can either make money or you can be a musician. You can't do both. Yeah, you know? it's like that old joke. It's like, Mom, I want to be a musician when I grow up. Well, son, you can't do both. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the truth is that Nashville, we have a reputation as a songwriting town. Everybody knows about songwriters from Nashville. But mm-hmm. in, in truth, we're a music business town. This town was built on 
really radio and media. And that's why the writers started coming here. And I think once you get a pool of writers, you are going to get more of them. For example, where you are in New York, there are dancers and Broadway actors. Mm -hmm. You're going to get more of those people. San Francisco, a lot of gay people. Well, that's that's how it starts. It starts with just a few people, and then you want to be around people that are like you, so you go to those type of areas, right? Sure. So with Nashville, that's what we did. We had songwriters, and they were here for the radio at first and later television. Everybody knows Hee Haw, mm-hmm. which was on for something like 30 years. Ridiculous, right? Was it that long? It, can you believe it? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. I always thought it was just like a local show because they filmed it at what we call Channel 5, a CBS network. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was going around everywhere. And yeah, it was around for about 30 years. It went on a lot longer than you would realize. And now, <clears throat> some, who has the, somebody has the Hee Haw Production Company now. You know, I'm not sure how all that works, but I know what used to be called the Nashville Network, a lot of that stuff is, is still around and it gets passed around. And certainly all the old content, all the Hee Haw episodes, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the old Dolly Parton shows, they're they're finding new life in DVD and cable and pay-per-view and things. So that that's it's still around, but I'm not quite sure. I, I don't believe the show is actually on anymore. Not that I'm aware of. Right. But but the, but the name is worth something and, and certainly all those those uh, performances. I mean you see them on YouTube all the time. It's like the Ed Sullivan show. Right. You know, you go back to them and it's 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 classic and it, it was kind of a double-edged sword because I, I think that, you know, when I started in the music business in 1995, I would go around and, and New York was hot and Los Angeles was hot. Nashville's really hot now. We weren't hot then. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, now, <laughs> you now know? it's like everybody I talk to is like, oh, I'm going to Nashville, I'm going to yeah, Nashville. Yeah, well, we've got something, you know, we've got this this new this new network show called Nashville, which is more of like a drama, kind of like Dallas, mm-hmm. and that's being pushed out. But, you know, for a while, people really thought we were no shoes and in a bathroom that was outside. <laughs> so so it, it's the double-edged sword. We, I always tell people, though, that in Nashville, for a long time, we were kind of like, if, if you've ever been like to the, the Bahamas, if you've ever been to some of these these islands where people mm-hmm. will dress up in like native gear for when the tourists come and they <laughs> they act normal the rest of the time, <laughs> we would do that. We'd put on our cowboy hats and, and overalls and you know, black out one of our teeth or something, but pretty much otherwise it was a, a normal city. It, it's kind of a big act like spring break or Las Vegas. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about this book a little bit. Um, what was, what was the inspiration behind the book and, and what is, what is the, I mean, like I told you before, I, I read the book while well, I listened to the book. Um, so I know what it's about, but explain to the listeners exactly where the inspiration came from and what it, what it is, what they'll get out of it if they listen to it or read it. Well, this this wasn't my first book. The first music book I put out was in 1999, and that one was great, but it wasn't the definitive book that I wanted. I was about, at the time, I started writing Six Figure Musician about 16 years into the music business, and I had a lot that I wanted to say. It was time for me to do another book. Mm-hmm. So basically, I started working on that. I, I thought at first it was going to be a manifesto. I thought it was going to be about 60, 90 days. I was going to write down everything, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger. I had a lot to say, but I wanted it to be evergreen. I didn't want it to be like tricks for, for Twitter, although we've got a few right. of those in there. I didn't want it to be about Facebook or social media, whatever was hot, because by the time I published it, I didn't know if those things were still going to be around. Sure. 
and, and a lot of them aren't around, but I wanted to give something to the industry and to the musicians that have helped me and helped my city that in 20 years they could go back and it was really like the hardcore psychological selling tactics that are going to help you get more people to shows, make more money, sell more records or downloads or whatever the incarnation of that is going to be. Right. And I wanted to do it in a way that I could replicate it because I, I can't do what we're doing now 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. I can't do live seminars 24 hours a day. I can't work one-on-one -on -one with people or any kind of consulting. But what I can do is print more books. And I wanted to, to really help the industry. I thought it was getting kind of off balance, if you will. It was more about fame than it mm -hmm. was about hardcore marketing and, and fan, fan um, I guess, I guess a aggregation. I don't know if that's the right word. Just, just gain, gaining more fans. Mm -hmm. and uh, more about, uh, you know, one-hit wonders than it was career. So I wanted sure. to give something back to the industry that would help them to, to do that. Now, the one thing that struck me as surprising that you decided to give the book away for free. Yeah. And what was the reasoning behind that, just to get it in as many hands as possible? Well, that was one of them because I'm more interested in, again, helping the industry and making an impact than I am making money mm -hmm. because – let's say the book was just a wild success and I made like a million dollars or something. It's like, well, it's like, I think I could have a better impact than that by just giving it out to even more people. It's worth more to me to see that than it is for me to make a million dollars. That's assuming that I would even make a million dollars. But also because one of the things that I suggest to musicians, this is the truth. You know, this as a musician that you have a better chance for obscurity than piracy. It's like you've got to get the, the word out about your stuff for people to, to want to pirate it, to mm -hmm. want to purchase it, certainly. And I knew as a marketing guy what I was up against, even with having a radio show, even with a popular blog, musicmarketing.com, even with having a big mailing list. So I wanted to give people an opportunity to check it out. And there were a lot of reasons. Part of it is, is to distribution. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got people from all over the world reading this, and I think it can benefit a lot of people. But it's, it's tough for me to get a book to India. A lot of these guys don't have the digital stuff. Sometimes 10 or 20 bucks is a lot of money to some places in the mm -hmm. world. So there, there were a lot. But I, I, I wasn't going to do anything that I was going to – wasn't going to suggest anything, rather, right. that – musicians do that I wasn't willing to do myself and it's a great marketing experiment so sure. yeah did that and then of course you know you you bought the the book on audible there's a book uh, hardback there's a paperback on Amazon there's a Kindle version mm -hmm. and when I looked this morning six figure musician was the number one music business book on Amazon so for all those that are worried about selling or giving away something and thinking people won't buy it that's that's not been the case from what I've seen personally awesome. or with the musicians I've worked with you know I, I've seen a lot of people give give away content for free and then people actually go back and say hey man i got a lot of really good information out of what you gave me i'd like to pay you for it yeah you know and i, I don't know if you've seen anything like that um with you which i'm sure you have but you know I'm, i've heard of a lot of people giving away free books or free content or free webinars or something and people go back and say hey man I, i'll i'll give you money for that or they'll say if you have another product i would like to buy that i, yeah. I think that's definitely helped it it didn't have an upsell though, this one. So I, right. <laughs> so I, I think that it's like, I wasn't maybe thinking and, and it was, all I wanted to do was spread, was spread the message. I, I, th I think you can probably, if you really want to, to make the money, there are better ways to do it than I did because mm -hmm. I wasn't taking on new clients. I've already kind of set up on that. Right. Didn't need that. 
But at the same time, I will say the double-edged sword of this is that sometimes it's in your fans' best interest, your clients' best interest in my case, to actually charge because people value what they pay for. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are a lot of people that have bought the, or not bought the book, and well, also bought the book, but but gotten the book for free that haven't used it. They think, ah, you know, it's free. Right. What the hell? There it must can't be, be that valuable. Yeah, something wrong with it. Right. You know, there, there are a lot of stories, and I'll give you one of them. There was a guy who was trying to give away puppies, right, in the paper. Man, free to a good home. Mm-hmm. Nobody took them. So somebody suggested to him, hey, why don't you charge, you know, 50 bucks? And people thought they were they were more valuable, so they came in there 50 bucks later, right. he's, you know, per pop, he's, he sold his litter of puppies. So, and sometimes that, that's going to get you better, better experience. I, I think about when I was growing up and I'm 41 years old now. So grew up playing music in really, I guess in the late seventies, but in the eighties, that was my main thing. And mm-hmm. it was tough for me to, I was working at a Baskin Robbins for $3 and 35 cents an hour. And I remember I wanted a, wah pedal like a wah wah pedal and it's like 70 bucks or something like that and had to put in you know 20 it's a good good week or two right just to get the pedal then i had to get the guitar the amp the cable the all that right to be able to play books take lessons i mean i really had to work for for my musical musical gear Mm -hmm. and i think today it's like man i could go download some kind of ipad wah iphone wah pedal or something if they can do that yeah it would be like 99 cents. It might even be free. Would I have respected it as much? Sometimes I think it's better to pay. So I, I think that's a good takeaway for musicians that sometimes musicians feel guilty about charging money for what they do. Well, I can't possibly charge my friends. Well, yeah, you can. Right. And sometimes it's the best thing you can do for your friends as well as yourself. Sure. You know, I, I look at it. I, I tell everybody if you have, if your friend had an insurance company and you called him and said, hey, man, I need insurance for my car, you wouldn't be like, are you going to give it to me for free? Yeah, you know, it's no. I sell insurance, and or you know, you sell insurance. I sell music. Yeah, that's that's what I do. So yeah, but do I, but I think though, if you talk to any doctor, mm-hmm. they, they don't tell people that they're doctors at parties because people start asking them about. <laughs> hey, I got issues. this thing. I got. Yeah. Hey, could you take a look at this? Right. I, I think there's something to be said for for musicians as far as maybe not the product but the service. You know, mm-hmm. hey, can you come play this party? And can you, you know, you know so it, it it's a it's a double edged sword. And I think that sometimes it's worth it to do something for free, such as a gig or give away a book. Sometimes not. Sure. I, I think the the big mistake is when a musician is like, "Well, I'm not moving. I'm not getting out of bed until I get paid." Right. Because there there's a secondary payoff usually, and sometimes it's worth more than the first. Mm-hmm. That's a that's I like that. You know, that the the secondary payment is is what uh, you know. That's that's what you're really after. That's that's the long money. As I like well, to call Stephen Pressfield, do you know Stephen Pressfield? He wrote a book called Turning Pro, which I is don't. excellent. That's my favorite. He wrote a book called The War of Art mm-hmm. and something a lot of people would know called The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh, yeah. And he talks about like a Marine having two paychecks. There's the paycheck that he gets that's, you know, $1,000 a month or whatever Marines make. And mm-hmm. then there's that secondary paycheck of serving your country or walking around in a uniform. I think right. I think it's the same thing for musicians. It makes sense. I agree. Um so if, if for drummers that are out there and they're going to read this book, what are they what are they going to get out of the book? What's in it for a drummer that can that can read this um to help further their career? 
Well, a lot. If I had to break it down just to one thing, to just one one answer, I would say play your game. I think it's really, really important for musicians, and I, I include drummers as musicians. I know some people don't. It's like hey, <laughs> some people don't. It's like no, singers. They think they think they're not musicians, but a drummer really makes things happen. And I think if you listen to you and I were talking about Chester Thompson, mm-hmm. who I, I know him from his work with Genesis. Yeah, but he's done a lot of other stuff. Uh, Weather Report, maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you listen to these these bands that a guy like Chester Thompson has has played with, it's like wow, the drums really they kind of make everything happen. If you were to put in a different drummer, it would be a different feel. And we've seen that with bands that will replace drummers. Right. So I would say coming in and think of yourself as, and, and maybe drummers think of themselves like this, but non-drummers wouldn't. There was a band with a great lead vocalist that was kind of the, I guess he was the sound of the band, if you will. Right. And well, you know what? Let me get, let me give you a, a drummer example. Okay. So, Let's talk about ACDC. Mm-hmm. And who, what's the guy's name? Phil, Phil Rudd. Uh, Phil Rudd. So Phil Rudd, whatever reason, left the band. And they've had, they've had various drummers. But there's a guy named Chris Slade. And Chris Slade, am I right about the name? Um, the you know, guy. I'm not, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a huge ACDC guy, so I, I would have to look that up. Because I, okay, so I don't know their new uh, – yeah, Chris Slade. Chris Slade. So, so, so Phil, because Phil Rudd is back, but let's, so let's, so Phil Rudd is kind of like the laid back, play behind the beat kind of guy that you're going to hear on the old 70s kind of stuff. Right. Chris Slade came in, Thunderstruck. He did that whole range of albums, probably two or three, but he didn't try to copy the playing style of Phil Rudd. Right. He was a, a technical, I, I think he's amazing. And I think he was great, but he really ch- helped change the sound of ACDC. And I think he did it by playing his game. And so many times we see musicians that are going to come in. The, the original example I was thinking of, there was a, a band called Accept. And people know the, the song Balls to the Wall. Mm-hmm. Very unique lyrics. And somebody sent me a, a video of, of the, the new guy. He's not trying to, to copy Udo, which is the, the first guy. He's doing it his own style. Ripper Owens, when he took over Judas Priest, from Rob Halford, legendary vocalist in that genre. He didn't try to copy Rob Halford. He did mm-hmm. his own thing. And that's that's the big thing, I think, for musical success is you do your own thing. And if you're not meant to play somebody else's parts, you don't play those parts. Right. I mean, certainly there's sometimes there's gigs when when that happens, right? Like a studio gig or something of that nature. Like if you're playing uh, for, for Wicked or some kind of Broadway thing, they pretty much want you to stick to the scripts. Sure. Well, when it comes to the creative elements of a band, you bring your own game. You're either playing hard or you're playing softer. You're playing behind the beat, on it, ahead of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, I think that would be the biggest thing. At the same time, I, I do feel when it comes to playing your game, that doesn't mean to be an asshole. Right. you got to show up for rehearsals. There's some, some things that you're expected to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, your game can't be I do my own thing. Yeah, <laughs> your game isn't your own band when you're joining somebody else's, right? But but it's it's bringing your your own brand of flair, mm-hmm. your own playing style. It's bringing your personality into what it is that that's that that there is. And it, ACDC to take it back to that when when uh, Bon Scott passed, very unique voice, very unique sound. When Brian Johnson came in to do the Back in Black album, he 
changed it up a bit. Mm -hmm. And now that sound is as popular as the original 70s ACDC. And there's been various examples of that, certainly Sammy Hagar and Van Halen, mm -hmm. and any, any major band that has had a change in personality and, and has kind of lived to tell the tale, because sometimes it doesn't always work. But what it, it, it wouldn't work, you know, there are a lot of these guys going out now, these older bands from like the 80s or 70s, and, and they try to, I saw a Credence Clearwater Revival, for example. Mm -hmm. They're called Credence Clearwater Revisited now, so they can still <laughs> build themselves as CCR. Got right. one or two of the original guys. And I think the, actually the drummer, I think, is, is maybe original. But they've got a new singer, and he sounds just like John Fogarty. That's nuts. So, and it's it's amazing kind of, how they find kind of interesting, and some people don't know, but as, as far as the artistry of it, yeah, you know. Right. He's just, it's, it's basically a cover band. Mm -hmm. It's a very good cover band with a couple of the original members. Sure. Now, I, you know, I think a lot of the people out there that are listening are, you know, have, are in bands. Um, and so let's just say, let's just put me as the, as the subject here. Okay. I'm okay. in a band. I'm in a local band. Um, and you know, like we have some people to come to the show, but it's not nothing crazy. What would you suggest that we do to, to get more people to the shows? And also what are the biggest mistakes that you see from bands? Well, let me, let me again give you just one thing because there are a lot of things that you can do. I think you need to make a connection with the fans. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be done in, in a number of ways. But the reality is, from my perspective, is that people are coming to shows, not just for you, but because you're providing the background music for their experience. And they want their friends to be there. Right. So you want them to, to, to certainly like you. But I think doing things that would facilitate them and their friends coming in there. Mm-hmm. The first thing I would do if you're trying to, let's say you've got 20 people or mm -hmm. something, you're building a mailing list, or you're, you're in, in touch either from people coming to your shows or from friends and family, is I would start getting referrals and I would, I would start bringing people in through maybe like a two-for-one kind of thing mm -hmm. or find all the women on the list and give the women tickets but allow the men to, to pay. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's like free, free, you know, ladies free or something. Because where the women are, the men will follow. Absolutely. I think, you know, showing people that they're having a good time, like we, we have this thing called FOMO, which is fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. And I think with your mailing list, if you were to do a gig Friday night, you know, Saturday night, you've got photos of the people having a good time. Don't make it about you guys necessarily, the people on stage, but make it about the audience. I, I got this from, we had a guy on Music Business Radio, Jim, worked with Jimmy Buffett. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is Jimmy's rule on the Jumbotron. Jimmy is not on the Jumbotron ever. And that was, Jimmy was saying that. He said, look, people don't want to see me and up my nose, look at my nose hairs on the Jumbotron. <laughs> they want to see themselves. They want to see their friend. They want to see what, what, what they can have because mm -hmm. it's really about them. And I think when you look at like dance music and the uh, electronic dance music, EDM, and why that's been so popular, they've done it right because they've made it about the audience because let's let's face it watching skrillex or something up there pressing some buttons or a button mm -hmm. you know not not real exciting right? right it's about the audience it's why disco music was popular in the 70s and i think just making it about that audience getting them to reach out to their fans i, I was joking around about taylor swift earlier but this is true too if, if you've got a taylor swift fan a, a tween we'll call her mm -hmm. she knows other tweens sure and just like you know other drummers or i know other people that would be in the music business or other people who would be in Nashville. So we all hang around people that are just like us, like we talked about Sanford, New York, and Nashville. Right. So getting your current fans to reach out to other people, that would be the, the number one way that I would 
expand upon. Makes sense. Yeah, I've seen, you know, a lot of people uh, have bring in photographers and take pictures of the of the show and then, you know, post them and tell people to tag themselves in it and and everything. So then you have like these groups of people that are out watching the band play and they have all these like high quality photos of them and their friends out dancing that night and then they yeah. share it on Facebook and the band's yeah. tagged in it. And it's like, wow, that seemed like a lot of fun. And then, you know, more people come and more people come, you know. Well, and beyond that, I, I talk about this in depth in the book, which is bringing in attractive members of the opposite sex, depending on what kind of band that you're in. Or the right. same sex, depending on what kind of band that you're in. Right. But let's say you brought in like some, some models or something like that. And you've got them kind of having your, your mailing list sign up or they're kind of working for the band. or You've got some attractive girlfriends or something of that nature. And you're actually taking, hey, can I take a photo with you? And then you're getting their information. They're more likely to give it, hey, I'll, I'll send you this photo. Mm-hmm. So I, actually encouraging them through the taking of the pictures. And, and every, everybody's got a camera on them these days. And it's yeah. not something like weird. But yeah, certainly like good, good photography and, and, and making it look like an event mm-hmm. that that can help you a, a lot certainly uh, the audio portion too yeah you know you, you talk about like um i would be releasing record i think you should record everything just for your own personal feedback sure because you can say hey you know our stage banter was a little too long sometimes we don't we don't really know how we sound or how we look i think you mm-hmm. should video it and audio it so you can release that stuff you can give it to people on your mailing list if you've got a popular song that's a great way to get people for your mailing list say hey guys uh we got a song right now. Uh, we're recording this or whatever. You, I guess the best way to do it would probably be afterwards. Hey, did you guys like that when you know it's really going well? Look, we're going to send you a copy of that for free. Give us your mailing list. We'll make sure we get one out to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That was, I used to, I played in a band for years and um, that was one of our tactics. We used to down, we used to record every show and then people could go online and download it for free. And it was like, we would go into towns, and the first time we went, there was 10 people there. The next time we went, there was 30. The next time we went, there was 300, you know? Yeah. And it's just, just from people sharing the sharing the CDs, and we were like, share them with everybody, you know? Well, and the super fans are going to want to hear different versions of, right. of those songs. If you think about the Grateful Dead, they were probably the best at this to let everybody tape it. And you've mm-hmm. got tape traders. But a lot of, there's a tape trading kind of uh, culture Sure. For really, for for all bands, you're probably in one of them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you go go online and then people will upload these things, and I think just being cool about that. So many people are worried about, you know, theft, and and as I mentioned earlier, the the biggest issue is going to be obscurity that nobody cares enough to even steal it, right? right. To even get it for free. So I think allowing people to experience it because we all kind of want to know what we're getting before we go there. And if you've got the photos and if you can hear the band is good, like hell, you know, I'll, I'll take a chance on that. It's like sure, going to the mall and you can smell the cookies, but there's nothing like tasting one. All right, give you those little samples. Come on in here, get a cookie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I wasn't going to get one, but yeah. yeah. You know, I remember talking to an engineer years ago, and and something happened with one of our songs and I was worried that, you know, I was like, it wasn't copywritten yet. Or, you know, I was like, what happens if somebody steals it? And he's like, what? And it ends up in like a Pepsi commercial. He's like, that's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. <laughs> you know, like what somebody does all the yeah. legwork with your song and you just call them and say, Hey, that's my song. And you cash in the <laughs> cash your check in, you know, I did an interview with a guy named Jay praise dude out of Atlanta producer. Mm-hmm. And he had, he, he was bumping around making, making beats and stuff like that. Ended up on a 50 cent mixtape, which 
he told me can be kind of the, the double-edged sword because once it's released, people don't want to release it again. But in, in right. this case, it was getting so much heat off the street, just some kind of bootleg thing, they decided to release it. And it ended up being this song called Wangsta. <laughs> and this dude is working at the post office, right? Just to, he's doing music as like a part-time thing. Gets a call. He's like a mail clerk or something, right? Hey, listen, <laughs> 50 Cent wants to get in touch with you. They want to license your stuff. And that was coming for, because somebody stole it. Right. So, right. so it, can, it can certainly happen like that. Man, there's a guy that, um, that is from my hometown. And what the hell is his name? Uh, he's a rapper like really well-known rapper and it's not Macklemore it's somebody else some white some white kid rapper I forget his name uh anyway but he did the same thing he was like on MySpace and like sent sent some producer this CD and he was like you know same thing he was a server at a at a bar and they just called him the next day and were like hey you want to fly down to Atlanta and you know next thing you know he's like the next big thing you know it's nuts it happens, and there's actually a, a chapter in, in the book on this. I call it White Trash Wins Lotto. No, <laughs> no offense to your guy, but it's one of those things that it, it happens enough that it gets our, our hopes up. That's not to say that I think you, you shouldn't get out there and do everything that you can. Definitely handle your business. But, yeah, it's certainly the, Taylor, Taylor Swift. Asher, like Asher Roth is his name. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that I Love College song. You know, and when it happens, it happens. And uh, it, it, if it's going to happen to them, it can happen to you. Justin Bieber, his mom was uploading videos on YouTube, right, <laughs> you know, right. and it just takes off. I had a guy, Emerson Hart, this is interesting, he was in a band called Tonic. Mm-hmm. So had the, the, like the most played single for two years in a row called If You Could Only See. And we, we just put this up at musicbusinessradio.com. If you I, actually, I saw that. I didn't listen to it yet, but I saw it up there. Well, he tells the story, you know, the first single of the album didn't really do what they wanted it to do. And he's living in like a one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they release his stuff. And in three weeks, his, his entire life changed. It's like, then the money starts rolling in. He said he's still living in like this crappy apartment, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sleeping on the couch or something. And right. It's got a number one hit, but, but it, it can absolutely happen when it takes off. I think the biggest issue now it is not that it can't happen as far as taking off, but what we see in, in, in Nashville, a lot of these artists that are on American Idol or X Factor, and, and they know when they're going to be on there ahead mm-hmm. of time. But what we see is how are they going to take advantage of the opportunity? And right. I think you can, you can do that ahead of time by building a mailing list, building a fan base. You can do that not so much during because – I guess people can search for you, but there's some rules as to what you can yeah. say when you're on there. But certainly afterwards, are you going to get in there and you're going to work work with all the, you know, le- leverage basically mm-hmm. what has has happened to you? So it can it can happen, and we've we've seen some of these guys that have hit American Idol that go on to I'll say great careers as working musicians. They might not be famous, but you'd be surprised what eight weeks on a very big TV show can do for you. Sure, sure. Even if you you're not the American Idol, and then there's some well, that Kelly are the Clarkson American Idol. An American Idol? She was, yeah. yeah and, and Kelly's she's, doing great. She's she's doing really well. Yeah. She's based here in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's she's been doing doing real well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and uh, some of them some of them not so much, and, and and that's the thing. Even if you win it, not necessarily a guarantee. You've got to you got to be cool. You've got to play your game. You've got to work with fans. You've got to find a way to 
keep in touch with fans. A lot of people really hit on mp3.com when that site was really big. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. a couple people that got major deals about it or major deals from it. And I, I can't remember, I think I mentioned one of these stories in the book, but one of them sold something like 80 copies the first week of a national release. Can you believe that? <laughs> and he was killing it on mp3.com and it's because he didn't didn't have the names and addresses or that relationship. They right. just assumed that he had you know every everything going for him and, and he didn't that's so. amazing that you it's, think, it, you know, it's like oh here comes the money it's like 80 copies here's your uh, here's your dollar 50 look we've all been there right yeah. i mean we we all put our heart and soul into these artistic endeavors and it's 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 a lesson i i think that fortunately though we can we can learn a lot by watching mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't have the full story but if, if you dig deep, you can usually find enough to make your situation a little bit better, and that's how we'll improve. Now, speaking of watching, what's the what's the one thing that you always see bands do and you're like, oh, God, please don't do that, and you know that it's like it's shooting themselves in the foot or, or some advice that you can give the bands, like, listen, don't do this. Uh, you know, there's so many things, and one that I find just really, really annoying is when you – go for quantity over quality. It's kind of like that person, and we all know her or him, that has like 5,000 Facebook friends, but they're just friending everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, friends, friends, I've got more friends. Right. But but they don't know any of the people there. It doesn't make you more popular. Mm-hmm. You might be, uh, you might have a bigger social life with just like 100 really connected people. And I sure. think that bands tend to do that. They think, oh, i got a mailing list of 20,000 people, but half the email addresses are dead and they're not going to clean it because their their ego would be hurt to drop it to 10,000. Right. And they're not going to ask people, do they really want to be on it? They just add people. And some people are on there twice. And, and I, I think that's the big thing, not just to say, don't add people to your list. You shouldn't do that. But just the, the general thing is that what you're trying to do is you're trying to form a connection with people. It's really a lot like dating. Mm-hmm. You don't want to just have a bunch of girls on Facebook. You want you want to have dates and, and maybe a connection with one one of them. Right, right. So I, I, th- I think fans are the same way, but it's it's much easier to send a bunch of books or, or records or whatever you've got out to people than actually making the connection and follow through. They do a lot of spraying and praying. Bands do, mm-hmm. sure. And it's uh, much easier just to you know, blast out an email to people and pretend like you're working. I, I, I think that's a huge trap for a lot of musicians. They, they fool themselves into thinking that they're, they're actually working, but right. they're not. It's, it goes back to that. Uh, did you ever hear the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, you're, you're so better off having a thousand fans that are loyal followers. And it's said that you can create an entire career around, you know, a thousand loyal fans. I think that's absolutely possible. Yeah, definitely. Because, and, and, and again, this is another thing that the book has, which it talks about going to people again and again and going for like higher end things. A lot of people think the income stream for a musician is like a $10 record. Or sometimes today it's like a $5 record, right? Because right. we just kind of devalue just the music itself. But when you think about experiences that you can sell to people, think about how great it would be. Like, Who's, who's your favorite drummer ever? Steve Gadd. Okay, so let's, let's, let's say that he's in the studio. Think about how cool that would be for you to be in the control room watching him do some tracking or something like that right. and how much you would pay for that. Or, you know, people will do that. People will pay 
to, I think Kickstarter is a great place to find out what people will pay for. Sure. You've got a phone call from the band, Skype sessions from the band. You can go into the studio. There's a woman named Butterfly Boucher. She's from Australia, but she is, she's been based here for a while, had a major label deal. Now she's independent. And she just released her 10th year. It was, I guess it was like a re-record. It was a record she did on a major label that a lot of people knew. And she did like a 10th year anniversary with a new recordings of it. Not mm-hmm. like covers, but just new versions of it. So a lot of people are really connected to this album. And one of the things that she did is like, hey, we've got some kind of funny background vocals, claps and things like that. If you record them on a mic and I'll tell you how to do it in MP3 and send it in, you'll actually be on the new album. People were paying for that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. And people were paying a lot. People were paying for you know, clothes from the video. People were paying for her bass guitar. It just which financed it, the recording? Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. Not only uh, did, did she make money in the recording, but she made money before the thing was even recorded. So right, it's right. it's like it's profitable already. It's already a guaranteed sale of mm-hmm. uh, you know a thousand or two thousand or whatever. So everything on top of that is just it's extra money. And I think that looking through Kickstarter or Pledge Music or some of these other funding funding sites you can find some very very creative musicians and and that's really what a thousand true fans is about it's not just selling them a record but it's selling them a membership site look at the economics on a, a membership site so or, or remember a fan club we mm-hmm. used to call it so if you have 9.95 for a fan club per month or per year or whatever that's a whole lot better than just 9.95 for one sale because mm-hmm. a, a band isn't even going to make that much money Right. On the sale, you might make a, like a buck or two. Yeah. So. Well, Dave, you have so much information. I love this is a great conversation. I love talking to you because there's you definitely know what you're talking about. It's you're not one of these guys. It's like, oh yeah, I understand the music industry and and it's hot air, you know, uh, <laughs> and because there you know how many yeah. there are out there that are like yeah, that. definitely. And I, I think that's one of the things that has been really beneficial, and I think that would be probably another tip is that you know I started as a musician so I know where people are coming from I I think for you to know where your fans are coming from Mm -hmm. have that like John Cougar Mellencamp that working class we we believe it right so when he sings those songs we we believe it and I I think having that absolutely helps yeah so thank you yeah absolutely so where can people go to find out more information about you and and to get the book and to listen to your podcast and everything well I'll give Three URLs. If you want the book, it's at musicianbook.com. And you can download the PDF for free. Take it, no obligation. We're going to be friends either way if you want to buy the upsells, which is different versions of the book, like a hardback or a uh, audible version. That's available there as well. I'd appreciate if you do that. Either way, though, if you'll, you'll leave a review on Amazon, that would help me spread the word. I write about music marketing at a website that I have called Music Marketing. Dot com And recently, I've started because music marketing or, or six-figure musician, rather, has taken off in the non-music space. I've started working on more like business marketing things. There's a lot that you can learn from the non-music stuff that I write, and that is at BigBoldImpact.com. And that's been a lot of fun because what I can do is I can kind of steal from other industries. A lot of times musicians, their eyes glaze over when I tell them that you should steal from other industries. But for an example of that, is Federal Express, the way they do their airplanes, they stole that from the check clearinghouse station or the check check clearinghouse system. Henry Ford stole the assembly line or borrowed, whatever you want to call it, 
from a pig pork processing plant. Mm -hmm. So you, you can see how like l learning from other industries would help. Mm -hmm. And I've got analyses of other industries at bigboldimpact.com. So if you want to kind of think outside the box, that might be an opportunity for you. You know, it's funny that you're, you're talking about Henry Ford and how he, he borrowed that information. I would never forget I had a professor in college that always said, never buy, never buy what you can rent, never rent what you can borrow, and never borrow what you can steal. <laughs> and it was, you know, just whether, because he said people will share information and people will, you know, will tell you things and you don't necessarily, and he wasn't saying it in like a go steal something kind of way, but if you can see other ways that people are doing things, it's okay to bring those into whatever you're doing. You know, it may be, like you said, it may be, it's a pork processing plant. And he said, well, may, I can make cars like this. So, you know, all this stuff is definitely, uh, definitely cross pollinates just because it's music doesn't mean that it's, it's not business and there's not other ways that you can, you can look at it and, and market it and sell it. Yeah. Let me leave you with a story that I, that I think exemplifies what it is that you don't want to do. Perfect. And it's a, a guy who's, he works at the factory and he is the guy who blows the whistle. Every morning he walks past the town square and there's a jeweler there and in the town square there's a clock and he sets his watch to the jeweler's clock and then he goes and he blows the whistle. Did this for years and years and years and he finally has to, to go to the jeweler one time and they started talking and he said, you know, I can't believe I've never been in this jewelry store. I walk past here every day. I set my watch to your clock and I'm the guy who blows the whistle. And the jeweler says, well, you know, that's funny because I set my clock to when the whistle blows. <laughs> and I, I think it, it's a perfect example for what the music industry does sometimes. It gets incestuous. Mm -hmm. We look, you know, Taylor Swift is looking at Justin Bieber and Justin Bieber is looking at Taylor Swift. Right. And it's a very, very small, small sample. Mm -hmm. of, of what's going on. And you, you think about those guys setting the clock. It's like, man, those guys could have been off by a day or two. They wouldn't have even known it. <laughs> right. And sometimes the music industry is that way. So I think it's, it's really good to look outside your industry. I really look at marketing as, as a game. I mm -hmm. think of it as somebody's got money and I've got to use my wits and my mouth to convince them to give me that money. It's not anything scary. It's, it's just like a video game and, and the money is just points. Right. So for anybody who's intimidated of, of marketing, I don't think it has to be that way. I try to make it fun. Bigboldimpact.com is certainly kind of an edgy, kind of irreverent look at that. Musicmarketing.com, it's about the music business. So how, how technical can it be? But mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't be scared of marketing. It, it really is a lot of fun. And once you get it, it's, it's like psychology, it's sociology, it's business. As you mentioned, Nick, it's everything that, that you like to put together. And, right. and, and then you've got the creative aspect on top of it. I mean, that's just, that, that makes it unbelievable. Because I, I think there's nothing more powerful than music to, to get people to take action and, and just to have a good time. And, and life should be fun, shouldn't it? Sure. Absolutely. And you're, and you're selling, you know, you're trying to sell music and you're, you're selling a feeling and a lifestyle, not a truck. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know. that's, that's what it is. And, and, and you think about it like, you know, you hear these stories, these songwriters, man, in Nashville, they, they tell me these stories. You know, I had a guy wrote me, he said he was about ready to kill himself. And then my song came on the radio and now he's happily married and he's moved forward, you know, and, and, right. and that really is the power of music. It's kind of a sad, sick, funny example, depending on how you want to look at it. But music, music changes lives. And I think that 
all musicians, it's, it's not just music. I think you're doing something important. So you really owe it to your people to learn about marketing and give them the best experience possible and, and get that music out there. Sure. Totally agree. And everybody knows out there, uh, you know, everybody that's listening to this, they can go to drummersresource.com and I'll have all the links for you, David, on there so that they can get they can get to, you know, your musician book. They can get to music marketing, Big Bold Impact and and check out your six figure income book. And I highly suggest that everybody goes and checks out these sites. I mean, David has a ton of information on there and the book is is absolutely amazing, too. So uh, congratulations on that and, and everything that you that you're doing in the music industry and. Thank I you. I, I hope I can just continue the momentum on the second book. You know, I got the yeah. sophomore slump. <laughs> I feel, but that's good. It makes me, it, it gets me back in touch with the musicians that I work with, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for, for taking all this time to chat with me today. And I know the listeners really appreciate it as do I. And uh, hopefully we can, we can get together and talk again soon. Anytime. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Great. Thank you. There you have it, Mr. David Hooper from musicmarketing.com. And he is such a wealth of information and a super cool human. So uh, it was great to have him on the show. And everything that we talked about in this podcast, you can find at drummersresource.com forward slash session 30. So I have all the links to reach David and where you can download his book, Six Figure Musician, for free. And I cannot recommend this book enough. It's such a great book. Uh, I listened to the audio version and read the the paperback version as well. So definitely check that out. Get yourself a free book and you will not be let down. And if you could do me a favor and leave me a rating or a review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. And spread the word. If you got some drummer friends out there that you think would like this podcast or some musicians that would be into it, just spread the word. Uh, we need, you know, we could always use more listeners and it's a labor of love, people. So so let people know that what we got going on over here and until next week next monday we have chris Kulos from oar which is a great interview as well so until then keep drumming and thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace peace